Welcome to Fundamentally Human, a podcast about mental health topics unpacked in an easy to understand way. My name is Shervin and I'm your host. Let's get started. Today we're joined by Mike Pond, a psychotherapist who specializes in substance use and behavioral addictions. He has over 35 years of professional practice and will be sharing his experiences with his battle with alcohol. Thanks for being here today, Mike. Oh, it's my pleasure, Shervin. Thank you for inviting me. And Mike, can you share a bit about your background with us and how you got into therapy? You mean how I got into being a psychotherapist? Yes. Okay, so my professional kind of story uh, goes back to when I was 19 and I quit university and I was traveling and I was hitchhiking across uh, Canada to come to BC. And I stopped in a little town called Pinocchio, Alberta to visit a high school buddy. And uh, we ended up partying all weekend, of course. And then he said, I'm going to apply for a job tomorrow at the Looney Bin. So there's a large mental institution in Pinocchio, right, um, back in the day. And so he talked me into going with him. And so I ended up going there, had an interview, and uh, ended up working there as an orderly in a mental institution. So this is back in the days of the cuckoo's nest, right? One flew over the cuckoo's nest. So it was that same era and the same kind of environment, right, in terms of mental health, these big, large, huge institutions just full of people suffering with uh, major mental illnesses. And then I uh, went into the psych nursing program there that fall and... uh, got my psych nursing degree and uh, just started working in the psychiatric units there at the institution. Then eventually uh, did relocate to BC and I worked in forensic psychiatry for for several years. Um, And then eventually uh, went back to school, upgraded, got my uh, graduate degrees and um, opened a private practice. And that was in 1994. So yeah, I've been in private practice for a long time. And I bet that over the course of the years, things might have changed for you. How did you Mm. go from being a psychiatric nurse into psychotherapy? That's a bit of a change. It is because, you know, that's the medical psychiatric model, which I kind of cut my teeth on, right, in this industry. But I found that it was really restrictive for me. I saw these mental health issues as a much broader problem and, you know, kind of a systemic problem, uh, trouble with policy and just the the system at all levels. And so uh, having that medical model didn't really challenge that, right? And so that's when I shifted into uh, social work. And I ended up getting my graduate degree in social work uh, because I really wanted to look at it from that perspective. So I have this nice, it's really quite neat because I have this nice blending of that psychiatric medical model from the nursing. And then I have that, that kind of social systemic perspective right from so it's a nice balance they blend nicely so that way i have you know a lot of experience and knowledge uh, around the medical uh, psychiatric um, diagnostic and medications you know that kind of medical approach after getting my uh, my graduate degree in social work i uh, became a therapist at that point and went into private practice so i've been in private practice for well what are the years, 1994? And we're coming up almost 30 years, right? 28 years. 
that's been a long time in psychotherapy. And mm-hmm. a lot of what you do is with addictions or behavioral addictions. Can you yeah. share a bit about that and what that means? Of course. Yeah, that shift didn't happen for me so much. I mean, I did treat, I had a generalist practice, family practice. And so I did a lot of work with children and families. And that was a big part of my work for many, many years. And of course, in those years uh, with forensic psychiatry, I was dealing a lot with offenders and in particular sexual offenders. Um, So I was dealing with those types of clients, offenders and victims. And and through that work, I just realized how significant trauma was in this whole mental health, mental illness, addictions realm. That's when I started to really start to look at this problem differently. And then when I went through what I went through uh, with my own uh, problems with alcohol, I saw how broken the system was. I saw uh, just how limited it was, the gaps, the holes, the stigma, the the shame, uh, the lack of knowledge and expertise in in this field. Um, And so I took that as a a pretty uh, personal and professional challenge. And that's when decided to write the books and uh, the documentary came out. And so my practice, just because of that, evolved in almost exclusively addiction work. But I have the experience to treat pretty well, uh, you know, any kind of mental illness or or psychological difficulty. And having that lived experience can be a powerful tool to connect with your clients, especially with something like alcohol, which is seen as such a social thing to do, but people don't understand what's going on. What's your story with your battle with alcohol? There's a lot of genetic loading for me and my family. Um, I'm not going to disclose a lot of personal information because they're family members of mine that are still you know, dealing with issues and, and I respect their privacy and confidentiality, but there's definitely a genetic loading. It was my grandfather. Um, he died at a early age, 56 from his alcohol use disorder. Um, my father, uh, uncles, aunts, and then I'm the oldest of four and the three out of the four of us, uh, struggled with substance use disorder. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting, piece there, right? So I really look at this problem now as a biopsychosocial and depending on your, your belief system, a spiritual problem. But what happened for me is when, when it really got bad, like when my condition got really severe, there was nowhere really for me to go. And it was like, you, no matter where I went, whether it was my doctor, whether it was family, whether it was other professionals, you know, it was, you need to go to AA, you need to, you know, you're an alcoholic, you have a disease, you're going, you've got it, you're going to have it for the rest of your life. And so you have to be totally abstinent for the rest of your life. And the only, and the only approach is at the time, and it really hasn't changed that much, was this almost exclusively abstinence-based models, right? You either you're going to drink or not drink, and that's it, period. And through that process uh, and educating myself and looking at all the research, and uh, I realized that, you know, we need to look at this problem differently. It's, it's a systemic problem and it's complex and there's not just one way to approach it. And abstinence, people recovering from this problem with the abstinence only model, the outcomes are, are not good. Um, only one out of 10 of us that have this problem and know that we have a problem actively, voluntarily seek help. 
one out of 10, right? And then those that do go get help, it's the system is, is really limited uh, in terms of the abstinence-based model. And so we go into this thinking that this is, these are my only options. The doctors tell me that, as I said, and family members and, and everybody. I, I was telling that to my clients back years ago that had these problems. I'd say, you need to go to AA and sober up, clean up, and come back and see me in a month or two, right? And I look back now and, and you know, I was, that's all I knew. And so that's the approach that we all took. Uh, and now I look back and realize, you know, how many mistakes I was making. So by me going through what I went through and ended up losing, I ended up losing everything, my family, my home, uh, my license to practice, uh, everything. And I was homeless and, and destitute uh, on the downtown east side. And I went through these terrible uh, recovery homes and uh, treatment programs. And I ended up in prison uh, only because the system uh, doesn't seem to be able to accommodate this, this very severe problem. And we tend to be criminalized and punished for having this problem. Right, because of the, of the tremendous stigma that's attached to it. And people with, that suffer with addiction, substance use problems, we're kind of now at the bottom of, of the barrel, so to speak, in terms of the stigma and shame. Used to be we're kind of in the same category as people that suffered with a mental illness, right? But now the, the stigma is much less with people that suffer with mental illness. So it's still people that suffer with this problem that we still hold a lot of shame and there's still a lot of stigma. And let me tell you, stigma is really what it is, is prejudice, right, and discrimination. So you're being prejudged, and then there's the discrimination that goes along with that. And that really limits a person's options, and it limits how the treatment system can effectively help us and treat us. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is a lot to take on for a good portion of your life to experience mm -hmm. and yes. you talk a bit about how the system is broken and I know there are some changes now to more harm reduction approaches but before we get into that what is your take on the system to uh, support people with alcohol use or substance use as in what are they doing now to help currently yeah, and um, what did you wish you had back when you oh, okay. were experiencing this? Yeah, so it's kind of a comparison of what it was like then and what it's like now? Yeah. Well, as I said, it was very limited, abstinence-based only model approaches and AA. It is changing and it has shifted. You know, I've been at this now, you know, trying to change the system and, and uh, look at these more evidence-based approaches for over 10 years. There's been some changes, but we still have a lot, a long ways to go, right? There's like these two camps. One is the abstinence-based model only, and then there's kind of the harm reduction, which is another term that I like is any positive change, right? So we're looking for any positive change, anything changing that's going to show us that you're making some headway, you're making some progress, these tiny little steps, and they all have to be recognized and, and legitimized and acknowledged. But the way the system was set up, it, it, it's like once you relapse, once you go back to drinking and drugging again, even if you've had several years abstinent, there's still this sense of failure. Oh, he's back drinking again. Oh, he's back drugging again. Uh, 
you know, we knew it was going to happen. He wasn't really buying into the program. And so then the onus is all put on the person that's suffering with the disorder, right? With what other medical condition do we do that? We put all the onus, and if you don't follow this program, you're going to be punished for it. We don't do that with people that have diabetes. We don't do that with people that suffer with cancer, right, or any other life-threatening disease or condition. So I just I took a lot of personal and professional fence because I saw so many people suffering through this, Sherman. I was on the other side of the fence, so to speak, the other side of the bars, and I was inside the bars and inside these places, the places that I used to, you know, be a supervisor manager of. I look back now and I just want to give myself a good talking to, right, for how I was back then, if I could do that, and just say, Mike, what the heck are you doing here, right? It's changing, it's getting better, but we, as I said, we still have a long ways to go. And it's mostly to do with the policymakers, the treatment industry, it's the private treatment industry. And I'm not criticizing that at all. I'm just saying that it's a huge money-making business industry. And a lot of times that can just reinforce this kind of revolving door, right? Where you go into rehab, you spend, uh, you know, 28 days to three months or whatever it is, and you're doing really well, and then you get out, and then you're back in the world, and you're back to, so to speak, reality, and you got to function in, in the real world again, and that's where we have a lot of difficulties. So a lot of it is, is lack of, of follow-up, lack of aftercare, lack of government funding. Do you know that when, whenever budgets are made through the government, the first folks to get the money is law enforcement. They're at the top of the list. And then we go all the way down and then it's going to be maybe like these nonprofit societies and volunteer, low budget kind of organizations. And it should be the other way around. We should be helping people, helping them with housing, helping them get work, helping them with social skills. That funding shouldn't be going just first and foremost and most of it and primarily to the law enforcement system. Because that just reinforces the criminalization of this problem. When I was in prison, which I ended up in over Christmas in 2009, I did my own little studies and, on you know, the wings and the, the units that I was on in prison. And I estimated like 70 to 80% of the men that were in there with me suffered with some kind of substance use issue or it was somehow related to their crime, right? That their crime was because they had to supplement and fund. I mean, let me tell you, there's real criminals. I mean, I'm not saying there's not, but there's the majority of people in there have serious substance use and mental health issues. I think it's pretty common knowledge that most of us, if not all of us, suffer from some kind of trauma, trauma in childhood in particular, adverse childhood experiences. How can you be raised in a home with, with you know, a parent or both parents that suffer with alcohol and or drug problems and not be traumatized in that. I know how traumatized my three sons were just from my drinking and what it did to our family. I know what it did now. This is where the another issue is, is if this is a systemic, a complex, biopsychosocial, spiritual problem, then why are we not treating that way? Why are we not working with the families? Why are we not working with the significant others? Uh, which is crucial. They, they have the most influence. The reality is your partner, your spouse, has the most influence. Your family, particularly your nuclear family, parents and siblings, etc., 
and your significant others, they have the most influence. They just don't realize it because traditionally how this works is you're the guy with the problem. You're the person with the problem. You got to go to rehab. You got to go to treatment. You got to get better. And when you better come back home, if you're lucky. And then they might have a family day or whatever at, at the treatment center. And the family member comes in and it's kind of like, oh, well, you're enabling him. You, you've enabled him and you're codependent. And I mean, these labels that we throw around that are thrown around all the time, the spouse, the partner of somebody with the problem, you come into family day to learn and learn how to, you know, be a more effective support and ally in this process, as well as taking your care of yourself. Because working with us, it's traumatic to live with us and it's traumatic to go through everything we go through. I know what my drink, how, how my drinking traumatized my family because I know how it traumatized me with a father that way and how it tra traumatized my father, my grandfather, his father was that way. And the intergenerational uh, impacts are, are powerful. So we need to, and this is a big part of my practice now, is we also need to work with all of those people those significant others in your life that have the most influence and teach them, give them skills, educate them, give them new tools. People are sometimes just like their eyes just bug out of their heads and their jaws drop when I start explaining some of this stuff and letting them know what some of their options are because they've never been told that they have this really powerful influence, right? Because they're told, again, typically, that you're codependent or an enabler. And how does that make people feel? You're enabling him. Well, no, that's my son, right? I love him. I don't want him to die, so I'm doing whatever I can to prevent him from dying. And somebody that's sacrificed so much of their life to help their loved one gets called codependent and enabler. So a lot of the stuff I didn't like. I didn't like the language. I didn't like the terminology. And, you know, there's a big bush about changing, you know, how we define it. It used to be alcoholic or drug addict or whatever. And... So now it's nice that it's, it's changed that way in the system. The DSM now says substance use disorder, whichever the substance may be, or polysubstances, because many people are addicted to many different substances, right? And it's mild, moderate, severe. And that continuum is dynamic. So it's not this binary, you're either a social drinker or you're an alcoholic, or you can use drugs socially and recreationally, or you cross the line and then you're an addict. There's this kind of absolute binary perspective on this. And to me, that's just not helpful. And it's wrong. And it's just a relief for people to hear that. And that's part of the problem with why are only one out of 10 of us voluntarily seeking help? Because we're going to be shamed. I've talked to union lawyers over the years. And one in particular with a major uh, health union here in British Columbia by the end he got so burnt out and advised the employees uh, the union members to not disclose to their employer because it was going to make their life hell like how bad is that the union lawyer will tell you to not disclose to the employer because of what it's going to end up being like for you and that's that's kind of what happened to me where then the employer Again, they just, they see it as you've, you've been bad or you've done something wrong and you need to be disciplined, which is kind of ironic when you work for a, a health agency, a mental health agency. <laughs>
Anyway, you can see how I can go on and on. You don't <laughs> have to ask me any questions. <laughs> You'd be editing a lot. <laughs> no worries. And it's very mesmerizing listening to you because not a lot of people are comfortable with speaking about these topics and these issues um, up front because it is such a sensitive and personal situation. But yes. I appreciate you bringing and highlighting the point how it's so systemic and that there are so many layers with addictions that people don't realize. That's for right. me, I've been working in this field for almost three years now. And before that, it's like you said, all I knew was AA or go to rehab. And that's just because of TV shows and movies and mm -hmm. what's being promoted. But yep. what people don't realize is with AA, the statistics, it's less than a 5% success rate. And while for some people, it might work for them and they appreciate the approach with faith and the 12 steps for abstinence, not everyone is looking for that and it's the same thing with rehab rehab is it can be about I don't know 30 grand a month and people mm -hmm. don't realize that either and sure you might be in a space where you're not drinking for a month or three months but it's like you said they don't have the tools they don't have the learning or the strategies they're not changing their behaviors when they're outside of the rehab and they're back into what you said reality mm -hmm. they don't have those tools and I think that's where the current treatment on evidence-based approaches and harm reduction and gradually reducing your consumption is a lot more stronger but yes. Mike, you mentioned a lot about your support network or people around you and in your life. I think that's something that can be constant, even if it was 30 years or present or 30 years in the future. How did people in your life respond to your situation and how did you talk to them about your addiction? Well, when I, when it first became really problematic and then it was like, it's time now, you know, Mike, for you to go and get help. Because it, it is a slow, progressive thing with most of us, right? And I drank and socialized and, and everything was fine. It's like we all did that, right? Uh, when you're younger, in your 20s and 30s, etc. that's what you do. And it all seemed fine because we were all doing it. That's what people do at that age. And, and then as I got older, it just progressed and gets you know, more and more severe. So part of the problem was that people didn't know what to do with me because here you are this kind of fully functioning kind of professional and you know relatively well regarded in the community you know i was a helper in the community and well known for for the work that we did with my organization so it was a big shock in the community and then what am i supposed to do right who do i go see because i know most of the doctors because they refer them to me and so there was so much shame and so much stigma. And because of the role I played in the community, it was even more difficult to reach out and seek help. And it's not my nature to do that anyway, right? I'm kind of, that's the personality I have is, you know, I can do this on my own and I don't need help. And so it was to ask for help in general, but particularly for this problem, it was really difficult. So then I, you know, okay, I'll go to AA. And I'd, so I'd sneak off and sneak into the AA meeting and, I go in there and, you know, a lot of people in there would be my, my patients, my clients and, and other community members. And it was really difficult. 
and then my doctor would, would be saying the same thing, just go to AA, and, and my family didn't know what to do. My wife at the time didn't know what to do with me and didn't have knowledge or skills, and it was hurtful to the children. Our family got no help at that time, and so it was really, really difficult. And I think because of the shame, the stigma, the limited system that we have, I felt I had no options. I really did, right? Um, my friends and, and family, they tried to support, but they just, because they weren't, didn't have the knowledge and the skills, like most people at the time, they just ended up getting frustrated and, and, and hurt and angry and uh, eventually to the point that I had to leave my home. And this is typical. This is typically what happens, right, when it reaches that degree. It's tragic. And then, of course, the, then your drug use and your drinking kicks up because then you're, you're isolated and alone, and that's another big problem. It's relatively common now that the opposite of addiction is connection, right? So the irony is, is, is the worse our problem gets, the more d disconnected we get because it's interesting, in one of the recovery houses, I didn't, wasn't crazy about that place, but the director did say a few things that I really appreciated. And one of them, he said, alcohol is the great subtractor. It just keeps taking things away until pretty soon you have nothing. And then eventually it'll take away your life, right? And I was at that stage, if we look at it as a continuum and there's severe at one end of the spectrum and, and mild at the other, I was like the extreme far end of severe. The options were, were pretty well gone by that time. And the only thing then was to, to end up in recovery houses. So the system is just inadequate and underfunded and as typically we have issues around government policy we're dealing with it right now in vancouver they're still dealing with come on we need to legalize these drugs and make it safe right for people and have safe injection sites and decriminalize personal use of substances and it will change things you look at portugal and they've been doing that for 20 years now and uh, it's just dramatic the positive outcomes that they're having because they decriminalized it that simple and had safe legal drug use. I like that you talk a lot about breaking that negative stigma. Before I started working in this field, I would use terms like alcoholic, druggies, and drug addict because that's all we see in movies and social media. That's how we label people who are struggling with substance use and it can be so harmful. Ever since I started working in this field of substance use and addictions, it's just like you said, the detriments of drug and alcohol use are slow and progressive. You don't get liver damage overnight, but with repeated use in high quantities, it will happen sooner or later. And that's the same thing with poor dental hygiene, where you're going to get cavities or root canals over time and it doesn't happen overnight, or with diabetes. I'd also like to highlight that challenges with drug and alcohol use is an actual disorder in the diagnostic manual that physicians can diagnose you with. It's called substance use disorder. There's a biological, social, and psychological aspect to it because it's so much more than willpower or stopping right away or stopping when you want to. Something day-to-day -day people like myself could change is our languaging around these people. It could be, say, struggling or experiencing challenges with your alcohol use. This can really help with breaking the negative stigma surrounding substance use. When someone is trying to make changes with their behaviors, saying things like, why don't you just have one drink, just stop drinking, 
or why can't she stop after one can be so harmful to them. It makes them self-conscious, defeated, and discouraged. You're right. One way, one very straightforward way is change the language. Change the terminology, right? Let's stop using drug abuse and uh, drug abuser and alcoholic and addict. I mean, we can, as people that have this problem, and you know, other so-called alcoholics, addicts, etc. We will talk to each other that way, right? It's part of the kind of the banter. We're like beings, right? And so we can call each other a drunk, or you know, and then it's kind of like your little your little world and your code. You can do that, but when you're talking about this problem in in context about making changes and positive changes to it, yeah, we do need to change the language and the way society, the public, and the whole entire system views this thing, talks about it. Like, I, I, I think it was a First Nations co-hiss, I think his saying is something like, if you don't like something, you, and you call it a weed, right? But if you, if you want to nurture it and take care of it, we call it a flower. <laughs> so we want to nurture a plant that's called a flower, but if it's called a weed, what do we want to do to it? Get right? rid of it. Get rid of it. <laughs> thought that was a really cool way of, a cool analogy of looking at this. And a lot of it is really just perspective. Even the analogy that you gave, it's how you decide to see the situation or how you decide to view someone can be such a powerful tool. It's, that's what stigma really is about. It's about perspective. It's about your understanding of a situation. Like even with alcohol use, people don't realize the biological symptoms of it where, you know, when you're drinking, you're releasing those dopamines in your brain where you're getting those high and happy feelings. And in a sense, that's making your brain crave and urge, have an urge to have the next drink. And that's how those behaviors kind of begin. And then mm-hmm. adding on the fact that some people, it might be genetic, and then you have all your friends around you or your work going for happy hour. And it's like, why don't you have another one or another one that just builds on and it ends up being a silent disorder that not yeah. many people will share about. But the general public they might not have any idea that that's going on and they just continue to shame and judge them and that's what really breaks my heart about this because there's just not enough information people aren't educated about this topic so what you're sharing today mike is so powerful because it really sheds light to what goes on behind the scenes Mm. outside of those i'm going well positive mantras in your life there are things that might be happening people don't realize because with mental health, it's, it can be really invisible. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And, and lethal, uh, you know, we talk about the pandemic. Well, we know how much substances are killing people. That's the pandemic. Seriously. How many people just die every single day from this problem? And a lot of it has to do with what we're just talking about, the stigma, the shame, the way the system is inadequate and flawed, uh, and how society perceives these problems, right? Yeah, it's about really educating people. And, and it's interesting you mentioned about movies and stuff. I just saw a piece the other day, and I think it was the New York Times or, you know, a credible publication. We are talking about how Hollywood movies really reinforce that because it's, you know, you're the addict and you're the alcoholic and, you know, you got to go to rehab and you got to do the steps. And I mean, every Hollywood movie that I know of, and if there's one that isn't, 
like this, then please tell me about it and I'll watch it. But any of them that I've watched, it's kind of like jeepers, right? They see this thing in that old traditional way and they're pushing it that way or presenting it that way and selling it that way. And that is not educating the people. And that's what most, as you said, that's how you learned or knew most about it, uh, substance use problems, addictions, watching movies and TV shows. They need to be taken to task. I remember watching one of my favorite TV shows and I'm getting riled up because all they do is tell people to go into AA or go into rehab and then not really talking more about the situation or what they can do to really change their behaviors. And I want to talk a bit about, you know, there's medication available right now that they're opiate blockers. They help with taking away the cravings and the urges in your Mm -hmm. brain. And then there's cognitive behavioral therapy or certain types of interventions where you're really learning strategies or small things that you can change during your day to really help with breaking those habits because an addiction, one way to describe it, it's a habit that you can't get rid of so easily. So just working on knocking those down and changing them are powerful ways to really change your relationship with substance use. Exactly. That's a good point. It, it really is. How do I change my relationship with this substance, right? It's like changing any relationship with anybody or anything is I got to change this up and redefine my relationship. And so people are like, it's my friend or it's my enemy, right? I'm either struggling with the urges and the cravings and the desire and yearning to, to drink and drug, or I'm thinking about how am I going to stop? You know, I'm on another bender. I'm on another run here. And how am I going to stop this thing? And so it's this, uh, this constant preoccupation with the substance, whether it's to stop it or how to get it or how not. You understand what I mean? And it's like you're, you're in this vortex of this substance everywhere you turn and everywhere you look and all your thoughts and all your feelings. So yeah, we need to teach people how to think about this thing differently, teach them how to behave around it, about it differently, and change up your social world, right? Uh, The biggest thing is creating another community, right, that is wanting for yourself that, this is why it's so tough for young people, I, I believe. It's tough for everybody, but I think particularly for young people. Because in our society, right, drinking and and doing drugs, but in particular, the drinking is, you know, media and advertising, etc. The industry is really, you know, glorifying this thing on one hand. And this is the only way you're going to enjoy yourself and have fun. This is the only way you're going to get a boyfriend or girlfriend, or this is the only way you're going to be a, you know, a great athlete or a great artist or whatever it is. And so it's glorified on one end. And then as soon as you cross this line, and we don't even know where the line is, (laughs) But somehow they, there's the belief that there's a line there that you cross and then now you become an addict, now you become an alcoholic, and now it's demonized, right? And so this is why people are so afraid. All right, I don't want to be, I don't want to cross that line. I wanna, don't want to go over that line because then I'll be that, right? And nobody wants to be that. Who's the, who wants to, you know, this is the other thing. You're sitting in a meeting going, the first thing that, comes out of your, that has to come out of your mouth is, hi, my name's Mike and I'm an alcoholic. I mean... To me, that just didn't work. People would say, well, you were in denial or you're not buying into the program or whatever. And it was like, no, I just don't feel I need to do that. I don't feel I need to stand up every time and announce that I'm an alcoholic. When, For one, what does that really mean? 
and the other, does that really help me anywhere than other than in this room, right? And even people that, and I have clients like that, and, and it happened to me personally. I went five and a half years without a drink, and then because of a bunch of uh, stressful circumstances and some traumatic stuff that was happening at the time, I drank again. And that was right in the midst of, you know, finishing up the book and starting the, the film. And I thought right away, I've blown this thing. Damn it. Why did I do this? Right. What's wrong with me? Five and a half years and I drink again. Right. And so even in my own head, knowing what everything that I had learned about this, I still felt like such a loser. Now, it's true. I am an alcoholic. I'm, I'm always going to be like this. And, and then I started to really go inside of my head and go back into that world of shame and disregard to the point where that morning I was packing my bags to leave, right? My relationship with Maureen, because that was my history. That's what always happened. I'd drink again and be shamed and feel like, you know, terrible about myself and, and pack my bags and leave. And she just looked at me when I was packing and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, look what I did. I've ruined everything. Right, I'm just a piece of you know what, and I'm going. And she says, No, you're not. She said, What have we learned? Right, you drank again, but that's not great. But hey, it's you know, it's not a fail, it's not the end of the world, and you know, your life isn't going to go to hell again. Right, and that was another one of my fears, and that's the trauma. And so she said, No, no, we're going down and we're going to get a Vivitrol injection, which is naltrexone, the injectable, long-acting form of naltrexone. And that, just that one step, having her treat me that way, right, with respect and love and caring and concern and no shaming, it shifted the whole dynamic. And I just went, oh. Because what would have happened if I would have walked out the door with those bags? What would have happened to me? I know what would have happened to me. Would have been straight to the liquor store, to a motel room, and it would have been straight to hell. So by her having gained knowledge and experience and showing empathy and understanding and having learned some skills, it changed the whole dynamic for me. Right? We went down, I got the injection, and things were right back on track. And that really taught me something, you know. It, it, so much of this is, is about understanding and empathy, right? And that can be really tough, especially if you've, you know, been traumatized by somebody, somebody's alcohol or drug problem. I'm glad that you're able to get that support from Maureen and from your family. It is a major theme of what we're talking about today. Not only being educated in the in the topic, but having that support system in your life. And that's not always easy, especially no. even being the loved one. The caregiver also needs to be taken care of. And for me, I found what was helpful to build my empathy for others in this situation. And I'll be completely honest, I don't have a substance use disorder and it's not something that runs in my family either. But a lot of people will question me, oh, well, how can you help me if you've never had this problem? And I tell them, well, does the doctor need to have cancer in order to treat his patients? And for me, it's not about 
understanding their situation completely. But it's just like you said, showing them that there's no judgment. I'm not here to shame mm-hmm. them. And I'm giving mm-hmm. them this warm and safe space where they can talk about their situation. And I only got to that place of showing empathy after learning about this. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's, there's that's nothing the, more that's powerful the beautiful than thing. that. That's, that's the beautiful thing is empathy can actually be learned. We can learn that skill, right? And it's, a, it's, a, it's probably one of the most powerful skills a person can have is empathy, especially when we're dealing with this, this kind of an issue, right? Empathy is like, ah, I can put myself in your shoes. No, I've never had this problem, but I, I can put myself in your shoes to the best of my ability and understand how, what you must be going through and how you feel. Right. Exactly. And, and, and present that. And that's more of a, it's not the, so much the words you use in that context, it's more it's about the spirit, right? People pick up on, on the spirit of, of empathy, right? That, that clients know that, right? I knew it myself, whether if I was working with a therapist or working with any kind of helper or professional uh, or not was, I know this person gets me and I know this person has understanding and empathy right it's easier it can be easier for a person like me that has their own lived experience right because i can convey that um and so that's a bit of an advantage for me right it doesn't mean that i'm more effective like you said i can still be very effective at this at helping people with this problem having not had had it myself it's just that it gives me the professional a bit of an advantage because people can look and they go, oh, look what this guy did, right? And he wrote this book about it and we can read that and learn about it and, and, and that's helpful. And then there's this, this film, this documentary and you know what I mean? And so there's ways for people to learn and gain that knowledge, um, right? Without having to kind of, you know, like you said, actually have that lived experience. Exactly. And it's just so important to learn a bit about these situations or to be educated in them in order to support others. But what can a listener do if they might be struggling with substance use challenges? What are some tangible steps that they can take to either seek out support for themselves or seek out treatment and help others get to a place of support? Well, Another good thing, a positive thing about today is, you know, we have access to so many resources online, right? And now we can go on and we can go onto Google or whatever, so some search engine and just, you know, help for alcohol use or, and all kinds of options will come up. So that's one way. But how, you see, this is the problem. Like, how do you know who knows? How do you know? that this person's kind of more with it and, and you know, more informed and aware and experienced in these other approaches and these other treatment models. A lot of it is you either need to know somebody that kind of knows somebody that's in the system or you need to self-educate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just difficult. Because with me, again, most people come to me because a friend told them about me or they saw the documentary or somebody gave them the book or, you know what I mean? It's more word of mouth than anything else. And it shouldn't have to be. That's, I guess that's the point. It shouldn't have to be like that. This should be the easiest thing 
in the world to go and get help for and it should be readily available and it's not because there's not enough importance it's not a priority for the politicians and the government so you may have to end up going to an AA meeting or going to a smart recovery meeting getting to know some other people right that have the problem so that's where AA and all these support groups I believe are really really helpful because I may not agree with some of their ideas and the ideology and the model that they use etc but I'm telling you, if, if you don't have uh, that mutual support at any level, whether it's AA, smart recovery, or friends or family members, it's going to be tough, really tough, if not impossible. And I believe that's why I, I went down so far and almost died because those options weren't presented to me. I was seeing a medical addictions expert, which is an MD that is an expert in treating substance use disorders because there's no specialty, right? There's no medical specialty for addictions. Can you imagine? It's the number one public health problem, right? (laughs) And there's not a medical specialist. You can't get a specialty in med school, right? After you finish med school in, in addictions, which is ludicrous. And you talk to any doctor and they'll say, well, how many, how much education did you get doing, you know, to become a doctor on addictions? And, most of them will say, I think it was one, one lecture, one three or four hour lecture for the number one top public health problems that we have in the world. It's difficult for people because you can go to your doctors. A lot of people, well, you got this problem, talk to your doctor about it. A lot of people won't because of the shame. And a lot of people won't because the doctor will say the same stuff. Well, you need to go to AA. You need to stop drinking. And they don't even know about the medications. That's been one of the biggest challenges is teaching the doctors, teaching medical professionals, primary care physicians about this problem and how to treat it. I had a client once that was in his early 20s, and I was working with him, it was an opioid addiction, told no one, not even a family member, until his mother finally found out. So they went to the doctor, his mother said, well, you're going to your doctor and talk about this. This is the doctor that delivered him, right? (laughs) He's been a doctor his entire life. And when he disclosed it to the doctor, the doctor said, I don't treat addicts. I'm, wow. refer- I'm referring you to another doctor that treats addicts. Way to shut right. the door on someone. Yeah. And this is, this is the kind of stuff that happens all the time. So, yeah, how do you, how do you support somebody? How do you get somebody to, to initiate help? Well, we have to meet people where they're at, right, and understand and family members, because again, the family influence is the key piece. So if I have a family member that knows about this stuff and is educated, so a lot of referrals I get are from parents or some, you know, a spouse, or somebody, you know, a significant other going, you know, I have this family member that has this problem, what should I do? I'll work with that person first and teach them, work with them, educate them, and give them new skills and a new knowledge base and a new understanding. And then they can learn to become that person's ally in getting well. I appreciate you sharing that. And it just reminds me of even in the Asian culture where I mm. have seen hundreds of clients over the last three years and only a handful of them are 
identify as Asian. And that's because, well, to begin with, in the Asian culture, mental health pretty much doesn't exist to begin with. It's not prioritized. And I know that's a generalization, but it is true for the most part. So when you think about substance use, that's the last thing someone might spend their time or money on to get treated for. So there's a lot of stigma there. But when we change the language and think about changing your behaviors, changing those habits, learning new strategies. It's a different approach to the situation. And it could be looking at medication like naltrexone, using the Sinclair method, going to therapy. It Mm -hmm. could just be, you know, giving a call to a therapist and talking about it first or telling a friend. They don't have to be big steps, but just recognizing and seeing where you're at with that process of change with your relationship with alcohol and ultimately what you want and what your goals are are going to be the priority. It's not what your significant other wants out of you. That might be a motivating factor, but it's not the end all and be all of why you should be seeking a treatment. It should be what you want from within too. Exactly. It should be client driven and, and, I'll often say to people, and it's, it's surprising to them, and you know, usually in our first meeting or in the early stages of therapy, I'll say to them, well, they'll be saying things like, well, I was told I have to go to AA, and I have to go to rehab, and I have to do this, and I, have, and I said, okay, who's telling you that, and why do you have to do that? And they'll try to explain it, and I'll, I'll say, listen, you know, who has the most wisdom about you? Who knows you better than anybody? And they'll look at me, you know, and then, well, I guess me, I do. I know the most about me. Mm -hmm. I go, of course you do. You have the most wisdom about you. Yeah, we need to be educated and learn from others and have mentors and and all kinds. I get that. But deep down inside, you know the most about you. You know what you're feeling. You know what you're thinking, right? You have this, this inner wisdom, right, that we need to tap into. And people are surprised when they hear that. Right, because it's a whole different perspective. It's a whole different mindset. It's a whole different way of addressing this thing. Is that you know what? You have some power in this. You have some some control in this. You have some agency, right? Because this is you, and this is your life. And that's what happened for me. Like I was almost dead, and I was in the hospital, and and had all of these tubes coming out of my back and chest, and serious serious infection, and the medical staff coming every day coming into my room and saying we don't know if you're going to make it or not and it's 50 50 especially some of your age and it was just like frightening and scary i just remember i was two weeks in and and the infection wasn't clearing up and they were really 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 concerned and so was i and i walked into the washroom and i just looked at myself and it was kind of like holy cow look at you right look at you and it was then, it was like, I can't go out like this, right? I will not leave this legacy for my sons, right? That how did your father, what happened to your father? And it would be, well, he died a drunk in the hospital or whatever and on the streets or I don't know. And I went, not yet. And I just looked at myself and I said, I am not leaving that legacy for my sons and my future grandchildren at the time. And that was it. And I just said, you know what? This is up to you you got to be the driver, you know, in this and go and find the resources and the people that are going to work for you, that understand you and can ask questions like not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? 
because we really do believe that we're flawed and, and you know, the traditional system keeps reinforcing that by using that language. You're flawed, you're selfish, you know, you're not working the program enough, so there's something wrong with you. And instead of, well, maybe there's something not right in this particular approach or this program that's just not working for a guy like me. How about that? <laughs> you bring up really great points there and thanks for sharing that bit because it just goes to show with any type of challenge someone's facing we have to look at the picture as a whole it's not just about that person but about what their treatment is or their support system and there's so many different ways to support people and before we wrap things up I want to pick a little bit on your um, psychotherapy side and a question I usually get is well you know with COVID especially everyone's kind of stuck inside a lot more often or they're feeling like they have imposter syndrome where they can't they're not good enough and they're feeling lowly of themselves and they just want to stay in bed curled up all day they don't want to do anything they're not motivated what can you do if you're in that situation or how can you support someone in those times yeah, you see, this is this is a difficult time we're in, right, that we've been in for the last 14 months or whatever it is now, coming up 15 months. And it's really affected people this way because we're limited in the options. Because typically I'd say, yeah, this is a biopsychosocial problem, so we got to treat it that way. So biologically, you need to get out, you need to get exercise, you got to be around people socially, right? And you need to go to psychotherapy and see it. And so those options have changed right and it's really limited and so we have to work with what we got a lot of people are depressed right now because of the situation we're in a lot of people have anxiety right a lot of people are really really struggling whether they have a substance use problem or not Um, but the reality is that most of us even before pandemic most of us suffer from what we call concurrent disorders right we have something else going on other than the substance use problem a lot of us have depression, a lot of us anxiety. And my own brother has bipolar one disorder, right? A very serious mental illness. A lot of us, you know, have ADHD. A lot of us have post-traumatic stress disorder or complex stress disorder. So it's a complicated thing. People are so debilitated that like you said, and I've been there where I can't even seem to get myself out of my bed to move even, right? I remember being in that state where I couldn't even haul myself out of bed to go and brush my teeth. I mean, for goodness sakes, to get dressed, it's really difficult. And how do you get somebody out of that in these types of situations? So there's this powerful push I'm seeing now because of COVID that we really need to address this, right? People are suffering, people are struggling, people are dying because they're, they're isolated. That's a gain where the family system, the significant others need to be considered and be a part of the healing process. It's so important. It could just be a small check-in or bringing them food. It doesn't always have to be dragging someone out of bed or doing something to completely uproot their whole day. What people don't realize is change can happen in small increments. It doesn't have to be an entire big thing that you do to help someone. And you might not even have the capacity for that. Exactly. It's just about 
And something I like to think about is um, I was taught as a kid, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. And for many years, I thought, you know, this is right. But what I've learned recently in the past few years is treat people how they want to be treated. Maybe that day they will feel better by being in bed, but sending them a message to check in or making sure they're drinking water or eating food can help support them and in the, for lack of better words, just survive. That's sometimes what people need. Well, exactly. And I think for a lot of friends and family members, right, that, that love or really care about somebody that has this problem, they, they really don't know what to do anymore, right? It's, and a lot of times they're, they're either burnt out or exhausted or they're angry or they're hurt. Um, and so you have all of this we call it secondhand drinking, right? It's, it's, it's all of the, the secondhand effect that your drinking or substance use has on those significant others in your life. Kind of follow the, you know, your example. I remember when I was on the streets and I had nobody and I was completely alone and just had the other people that were on the streets and none of my family was talking to me, to me anymore. My oldest son hadn't talked to me in almost three years. Um, and I would, once a week maybe, I'd get a ping and a little text from one of my sons. Hey, Dad, just thinking about you, right? Love you, right? And that would be enough. That would go, okay, that would keep me going for another few days, right? Just that little indicator that I knew somebody was out there that was thinking about me, and they were actually thinking about me. <laughs> That's straightforward. Somebody's thinking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't message someone right now that you care about. Yeah. (laughs) Let them know you're thinking of them. Just say, hey, thinking about you. And, uh, you know, that simple little message. Hey, Dad, just thinking about you today. Love you. Hope you're okay. That was it. And I wouldn't necessarily respond back because a lot of times that would, I wouldn't get a response back. Then I'd get upset, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, so I just have to take that as the little gem, right? And just cherish that. Yeah. Yeah. That's all people have to do is just make a connection. You don't have to problem solve. You don't have to fix it. Right. You don't have to do something for them necessarily. You just have to let them know that you're, you're there and you're thinking about them. That's so true. And it goes a Mm -hmm. long way. Just reminding yourself that someone is thinking about you and Mm -hmm. someone's there to support you. So everyone go message (laughs) someone that you've been thinking about. And Mike, my last question for you today is a lot of my work with the podcast is to normalize mental health and to talk about therapy and having people understand that it's not about going to therapy when you're at rock bottom. You Mm -hmm. can go to it at any stage of your life. But what's something that you wish people knew or you want to debunk about therapy? That it's a healthy thing to do, right? It's not a sign of weakness or that you're not competent or capable or don't have the capacity, right, to, to live a normal functioning life. And, and this is where a lot of people get into problems, right? It's like I said, I, I had a lot of difficulty asking for help. I'm the helper. I don't ask for help. I help others. And this idea, and I think it is changing. It is changing, right? That me talking to a therapist, talking to a professional is actually a really healthy thing to do. And I've noticed that shift because I've been in doing this work for so long, right? I've been doing this work for, God, over 40 years at whatever level. 
And when I started work, I used to, people used to have to come in and sneak in and wait in the door. And then I had to let them out, out the back door, right? So that nobody would see them. And so there was this real stigma, shame, and I understand confidentiality. I get it, but I'm talking about how getting care, mental health care and help still in particular with addiction still has that stigma. I'm not sure I answered your question there, but. No, you did. And there are options now where, you know, you can go online and have yeah. therapy over video. Yeah. You can do evidence-based approach treatments or download apps. Like there in Canada, there's, I think it's called MindShift. It's an app yeah. for anxiety, or you can speak with your family doctor about other evidence-based approaches or medicine that could help with addictions. There are a lot of things out there now. And while you might have to do a little bit of research, you can also reach out and talk to people about these things too. You're not alone in this and it's not something that you should be shamed for either. So your story is so valuable and empowering, Mike, because it really helps with this battle of breaking down that negative stigma and normalizing mental health from yeah. multiple aspects with your own battle with alcohol use and then with your background as a psychotherapist and a psychiatric nurse. Mm -hmm. Mike, what can listeners do to support you or what have you been up to now? Well, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, I've got a really good life now. We live in a beautiful place on Vancouver Island, right on the ocean and in nature. And that's really helps a lot. I try to, when I'm working with my clients, I go, you know what? You get out into nature, you get out near the water, you get out into the woods, you, you know, that will in and of itself, there's science that says that's very, very healing. So that is what really helps me. And I'm in a relationship with, with a partner that understands this thing. And like we said earlier, has the skills and knowledge. I mean, she is my ally and I'm her ally, right? And now my, my sons are older, of course, and they've become much more educated and understand this problem. And in fact, you know, one of my sons struggles with this problem or did struggle with it. And he's given me permission to mention this if I need to or want to. Because that has changed in my life. And I often say, man, if my family, if I did and my family did know what we all know today, if we would have known this 10, 15 years or 15 years ago, my probably story would probably would have been very different. I'm sure it would have been. It, I may not have stayed in my marriage, in my relationship, but I think everybody's life would have been very different. And I know you have a book, Wasted, for anyone yeah. who might be interested. Where can individuals find your documentary? Documentary, you can get a link to it on our web, my website, michaelpond.ca, and now it's on YouTube, so uh, it was fenced in locked into just canada only but now we can you people can get it uh, worldwide it's been released worldwide it's just uh, you just have to go on youtube and look up michael pond wasted there you go and the, the book it can be ordered on amazon or any types of platforms yeah thank you Read so much book. mike watch the documentary <laughs> learn a bit more about the situation it's a it's a heavy topic but thank you so much mike for sharing about that with us today you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. 
And for any listeners who are visual learners or would like some more resources, I will have a blog post on this topic and I invite you to read it on shervin.ca and to follow my Twitter at hellosherbin for updates. I hope everyone has a great rest of their day. Take care.